0: Welcome to San Francisco City Insider, the San Francisco Chronicle podcast on the people and politics making headlines in the city by the bay. I'm Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and I'm here today with Dennis Herrera, who as city attorney is charged with representing the weird and wacky city of San Francisco in court. He was elected in 2001 and has been reelected four times since. Today we're talking climate change, Prop C, PG&E, Donald Trump, Kamala Harris, and the question he gets a lot. Is he running for mayor? Stick around for the lightning round to see if he, unlike some other politicians, can remember where he likes to go for a burrito. All that and more is coming up next with City Attorney Dennis Herrera. Well, thank you so much for being here today. It's great to see you.
1: I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Great. Um, Of course, one of the big issues at City Hall these days is this decision in a memo that you put out several months ago that um, voters only needed to approve certain ballot measures by 50% plus one rather than two-thirds. This is tax measures. And you um, said, directed the city that uh, for voter-initiated measures, they only needed 50% plus one. And that has since become a huge issue at City Hall with three measures now hanging in the balance, the biggest one being Prop C to raise $300 million a year for homeless services. Can you explain um, how this all started and why you put out that memo in the first
1: place? Sure. Um, this really came out of uh, a case called, we call the City of Upland. Mm-hmm. Uh, and It was a Supreme Court uh, case that was decided about a year ago. And it dealt with the issue of when you can put uh, tax measures on the ballot, whether they're special taxes or general taxes. And the Supreme, California Supreme Court in that decision said that um, a, voter, uh, a, a voter-initiated tax measure could be uh, put on the ballot uh, at a different time than had previously been the case. And the, le- the exact language that um, they relied on in the California Constitution is in the very same paragraph uh, and is virtually verbatim mm-hmm. that deals with the same logic that you have when you deal with the percentages. So, and in fact, in that decision, uh, when they lay out uh, what the the parameters are, they talk about the difference of what you hold politicians to versus what you hold voters to. And in the dissent in that case, you know, th- 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 while the issue wasn't dealt with in terms of percentages, two Supreme Court justices said, hey, if we follow this logic, what you're basically saying is that voter-initiated measures also are going to be have a 50% threshold rather than mm-hmm. a two-thirds uh, uh, threshold. So following that decision, we looked at it very, very closely. And we wanted to put out an opinion that was transparent where our legal reasoning was uh, uh, out there for everybody to see because the logic was so clear based on what the Supreme Court said in the the city of Upland that the next natural progression uh, in addition to dates was – voter-initiated measures had uh, only a 50 percent rather than a um, two-thirds threshold. And since that time, there's been uh, another uh, county up in um, northern California, way, way in the north, that has issued the same advice as we have. And I think Oakland is on the verge of doing the same thing. So I know it's been a big issue, but um, we wanted to be transparent. Uh, We wanted to be honest about what our analysis was. And um, obviously, that's something that... uh, uh, folks are taken a look at.
0: <laughs> Did you anticipate that so quickly there would be three measures kind of hanging in the balance with hundreds of millions of dollars a year it, tied it,
1: up? I, it wouldn't surprise me. I knew mm-hmm. that this was, we, we had to issue the guidance, but was, we issued the guidance. Um, I had a pretty good sense that there would be uh, measures that um, uh, were put on the ballot that, that looked at it right away.
0: Mm-hmm. And so you said there's one other city or county that's backed you up on this so far?
1: Not backed us up. that Agreed. This, uh, yeah. <laughs> Del Norte County. Uh-huh. And my understanding is that Oakland either has or is about to issue something similar.
0: Okay. Um, have you spoken with the mayor about this because she didn't want Prop C to pass? And now that your um, your memo's kind of out there, this $300 million a year is hanging in the balance. Is no, she I mean, giving you bad looks when she sees you in no, the No, <laughs> yeah, I have to say, you know,
1: one thing that is always, in my 17 years in office, one thing that has always worked um, well, and I think it's... For the credibility of our office is that uh, the policymakers respect um, our professionalism, our independence. We call it like we see it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it is what it is. We say what the law is. The policymakers make uh, the policy. And there hasn't been uh, maybe jokes once in a while over the <laughs> years, but uh, really haven't been very many uh, uh, dirty looks. They understand <laughs> that we're doing our professional best to give guidance.
0: Okay. Next month, believe it or not, marks 15 years since then-Mayor Gavin Newsom started marrying same-sex couples at City Hall. Time flies. And you, of course, began fighting for the legalization of same-sex marriage. Can you believe it's been that long? And can you describe what those first few days were
1: like? Well, it's funny uh, because… I used to, That used to be the only thing that people wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. That's the first marriage question I've gotten in a long time. And yeah. maybe I just know it was an anniversary. Right, maybe that's a really good thing, and it shows how much uh, this is, we've changed the hearts and minds of people, and now it's not a big deal. Yeah. But um, I look back at the pictures, and um, uh, Gavin Newsom and I look a lot younger uh, <laughs> than we do now, and um, I can really remember that um, vividly. Uh, the... Um, Circles, lines of people around City Hall. Because I can remember on President's Day weekend, driving by City Hall and seeing hundreds of people surrounding City Hall, waiting uh, to get in. Because we had, you know, sort of uh, 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 not been struck down in the courts right away, and people really went out there and 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 and, and wanted to get married. So it's something that I look back on. Um, I consider it a great privilege to mm-hmm. have been. Involved in it. It was a lot of work over 10 years. Emerging every state and federal case that was brought, we were in the center of it. But it was also very emotional because, um, and I didn't think that it was going to move me as much as it did because lawyers are taught to be, you know, a little bit, you know, be objective, be removed. But I saw when people come up to me and talk to me about the difference that we made in their lives, or I'd see people that I knew that got married, um, it was really, really moving. So thinking back, it's been 15 years, you know, brings back a lot of really, really nice memories.
0: Yeah. Did you think that the Supreme Court would weigh in as soon as it did and that it would be legal nationwide?
1: Um, interestingly enough, I was more nervous about uh, the California Supreme Court case, because at that point, you know, we really didn't know what was going to happen. And, you know, it was, remember, it was, it was a close decision, and I didn't know which way it was going to go. So to me, that was more an unknown. But then as I saw after that, the progression as it made its way through the federal courts and we had our case here in the Northern District of California, and then we moved our way up, you could see the politics following the legal developments. And it was a perfect example of how the law impacts uh, politics and then the politics impacts the Mm -hmm. law. So this circular thing and mutually supportive. So by the time it got to the Supreme Court, I wasn't nearly as nervous or worried as I was when we had the first case in the California Supreme Court.
0: Right. You've never been shy in talking about PG&E and now the utilities on the verge of declaring bankruptcy after last year's devastating wildfires. Uh, what do you think this means for San Francisco and should the city look more seriously at public power?
1: Absolutely. I think that uh, the irresponsibility of PG&E over um, the last two decades has been astounding. Look, this is the second time they've been going through, probably, going through bankruptcy Mm -hmm. in 20 years. And when you look at the lack of investment in infrastructure, um, the lack of concern uh, for safety, putting people at risk throughout Northern California, it's appalling. And um, I am very happy that you see now, um, uh, both in the media and in uh, uh, City Hall and in the legislature, people really, Want to have an honest discussion about the best way to bring safe uh, power, affordable power, and that includes a public power option. And I think that is a debate that needs to happen. And the stuff that doesn't even get the headlines, we fight with PG&E all the time over what they want to service. Because we are responsible for municipal projects, but we have to rely on their distribution network. And they fought us on pools, on parks, on museums, on things that are clearly public um, facilities, they fight us all the time to the detriment of the community. So I think it's a debate that needs to happen. I'm happy it's happening, and we need uh, a responsible provider of power in the city.
0: You tried suing several big oil companies over their contribution to climate change, but you lost in federal court and now you're appealing. Can you talk about that suit and why you think oil companies should pay up?
1: Sure. Uh, I, I'm actually very happy that in that district court case that we lost, Um, that the oil company's defense for the first time admitted that they accepted that – the the conclusion of scientists that climate change was occurring and Mm -hmm. that there was a a, a role that um, uh, 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 companies had in that. We first brought that case in state court under a public nuisance theory, which was the same theory that we had on lead paint cases, which we just – received final judgment, on, and California is going to be getting hundreds of millions of dollars to remediate um, uh, lead paint exposure in communities throughout um, California. It's the same exact theory. Unfortunately, we were removed to federal court, and Judge, Judge Alsop said, while I recognize that this is an issue, this is something better left to um, uh, other branches of government to fashion a political solution, and uh, federal common law really is not the appropriate forum for us to deal with this public nuisance. I think that's totally wrong. We're uh, on appeal. And we have shown in our state court actions, public nuisance is a totally viable theory. That's what we did with lead paint. And I am just saying in this case, look, I'm not going to get involved in the political debate about what's the appropriate level of of uh, of, of, um, of uh, energy or whatnot. That is for – but if you're going to do that, then you have to pay – to remediate public nuisances that you have caused. And there is no doubt that oil companies knew this was a da- these, these were dangerous products, that they withheld that information from the public to uh, fatten their coffers, and that they tried to deceive the public through manipulating the media. So if you want to go down this road and continue energy production, that's your choice. But you have to pay for the effects, and we at San Franciscans are probably gonna suffer $40 billion worth of damage over the course of the next decades to sort of uh, mitigate our sea level. So building a seawall as an example, what
0: else are we gonna have to do that you're looking at monetarily? I mean,
1: I I, I can't tell you what the solution is, Mm -hmm. but I can tell you that estimates are that we are gonna have to invest in infrastructure improvements to protect public and private property in excess of $40 billion. And it's it's seawalls, it's uh, uh, sewer infrastructure improvements, and a whole variety of other things which are beyond my technological knowledge. <laughs> right. But um, as a lawyer, you want if you're going to cause damage to us and we're going to have to pay, we're going to have to pay, you're going to have to pay.
0: Yeah. Also, of course, you're a dad raising a, a son in San Francisco. Are you worried about what the future holds for him and other young people in the decades to come with A- climate ab- change Absolutely. coming so quickly.
1: I really am, I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, I'm 56 years old and it's already starting. But um, uh, my son, your children, our grandchildren, they're the ones that are really gonna have to deal with the effects. And when you see um, the predictions about, I just saw something that Green, uh, Greenland's uh, um, ice sheet is melting four times more quickly than they predicted. This is not something that is just going to happen in the distant future. We are seeing the effects now, mm-hmm. and it's going to accelerate. And this has uh, potential catastrophic uh, impacts for, for our world. And, and, and I worry what is going to befall our, our kids and grandkids if we don't get this under control.
0: Right. You also recently sued pharmaceutical companies for fueling the opioid crisis. Um, I wondered if you could speak to that. Of course, it's easy as a San Franciscan to- could walk outside this building and within a couple of minutes see an example of the devastating effects of yeah. injection drug uh, use.
1: Opi- opioid um, addiction is a, a problem. And it's not just for young people. Um, if you look at um, what happened for, for elderly people, New York Times ran a piece several years ago about opioid e- ep- epidemic in Staten Island, New York, about old elderly people that were getting uh, addicted to painkillers and what it meant for them both financially and um, and otherwise this is a, a a crisis that is affecting communities throughout uh, uh, the country both um, young and old and I think that um, when you can demonstrate that the industry pharmaceutical industry knew what was going on and despite that continued to market it uh, 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 through direct-to-consumer uh, DTC marketing and through doctors. It's something that uh, uh, needs to be addressed because this epidemic isn't going away. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's continuing to grow.
0: So which is worse, the oil companies or the pharmaceutical companies?
1: <laughs> I, look, both, <laughs> of these, both of these industries have to take responsibility. Any industry has to be responsible uh, and act responsibly uh, in the public marketplace. And uh, there are roles— for each industry to play in order to further progress um, in our world, but you know it has to be done uh, in a responsible uh, uh, way. And I would just encourage each of them to uh, make sure that they're stepping up and acting responsibly. At the same time, I understand they're the, in a capitalist society; they're out there to make a profit. I get that, but we have to understand that we are stewards of our communities and our world, and you have to act responsibly so that people can make reasonable choices.
0: You and um, President Trump's Justice Department have battled in court over the president's executive order to strip sanctuary cities of federal funding, and you've won, I understand, each round. Um, Is it gratifying to beat Trump, or is it more of an unnecessary headache?
1: Uh, I think both, (laughs) because it is an unnecessary headache, which when you're trying to just villainize uh, communities for purely political purposes, when you don't have to, when the law is clear, it's an unnecessary headache. Mm -hmm. So when you have that, right... You want to make sure that you're demonstrating to them uh, that you know what you're doing and maybe to get them to think twice about what it is that they're doing. So it's gratifying to beat the administration uh, repeatedly when they're trying to villainize uh, communities, pit Americans against each other, and threaten the public health and safety of communities for nothing more than political purposes. Uh And I think that's something that, unfortunately, we have um, seen – uh, repeatedly in this administration. Uh, you hear all the time them talking about their base, their base, or playing to a certain segment of a population that they think uh, agrees with them on an issue. That's not what being president of the United States is all about. You're a president and an administration for all Americans, and you should be bringing us together. Even of, San Franciscans? Even <laughs> San Franciscans. Instead of dividing us, and, or trying to divide us, and if we can use the power of the law to send that message and to bring people together and make a di- positive difference in people's lives, we're going to do it.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, do you? What do you think of the whole term San Francisco values and the fact that anything we do is immediately attacked by the White House these days and Fox News and the base, as you called it? Uh, do you? Do you like kind of leading that role or? I,
1: it's just it's part of the job. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think back to. Um, when they had the Democratic convention here in 1984, Gene uh, Kirkpatrick uh, given a speech about San Francisco Democrats during the Republican convention. So this is nothing new. Yeah. But I like to think that um, because we're forward thinking, because we are uh, um, uh, progressive in our viewpoints, uh, that we can help uh, win the hearts and minds of people on a variety of issues that I think bring people together. And I'm proud to be a part of that. And um, whether it be in the area of civil rights or or, or marriage equality or the environment or whatever, um, we have a history uh, in San Francisco of being leaders in that fight. And I think that that's something that ultimately is good for America.
0: Mm -hmm. Who do you like for 2020 so far?
1: (laughs) Well, there's a number of candidates out there. One
0: of your allies, Kamala Harris. (laughs) Well,
1: look, I think Kamala would be a wonderful candidate. That is who I am supporting. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a long time friendship mm-hmm. a long, we're a long time professional colleagues i think that she has uh the vision uh to lead and uh no one should ever underestimate her toughness mm-hmm. behind that smile she's tough she's smart um she knows how to work with people and i think she'd be a, a wonderful uh president and i'm going to do everything i can to support her
0: cool can you believe just how much her career has skyrocketed? You two were working together, of course, in the early 2000s,
1: and yeah. She's running well, for president. Yeah, well, you know, look, she, Kamala is smart, um, she's tough, she has healthy ambition, and I mean that in a very good way, mm-hmm. and she loves this country, and, um, you know, she's incredibly talented, and uh, um, it doesn't surprise me to see her trajectory, mm-hmm. and I'm going to be there every step of the way to do what I can to help her.
0: Cool. And um, on another subject, your office recently took over the handling of hundreds of civil conservatorships of uh, very mentally ill people after London Breed, as supervisor, asked that they mo- moved out of the district attorney's office. How is that going so far? And what else do you think the city should be doing to combat its huge mental health and homeless problems?
1: Well, first of all, we just took responsibility okay. for those cases on January 1. Okay, so, so it's we're pretty new. <laughs> yeah. But um, this has been in the works for quite some time, and uh, we have uh, three new positions that are going to be dedicated to that. But, you know, I'm really glad, Heather, that you uh, didn't just identify it as a homeless problem. Mm-hmm. You said mental health mm-hmm. and uh, homelessness. Because I think that, unfortunately, um, San Franciscans and people around this country always talk about a homeless problem. This is Homelessness is a symptom. We have a mental health and drug addiction crisis in San Francisco. There are certainly those that are, have been marginally employed and losing their jobs and whatnot. You know what? I think we do, actually do— a pretty decent job of trying to help those people, mm-hmm. and we've made great strides. But the rest of this, we have mental health, drug addiction, and um, uh, we as uh, not we in the state of California and cities working together need to do a better job to step up to figure out how to service that population. And then there's other folks that I have to say that I think that you see folks on the street that hide behind. Homelessness mm-hmm. and um, uh, uh, take advantage of the plight of those that are really down in their luck. So, mm-hmm. and and for those folks, I don't have any sympathy. But for those that are truly homeless, those that are uh, suffer from mental health and drug addiction, you know what? We as a society have failed them, and we need to step up. and, and I have these ideas. I mean, I, I, I one thing I've thought about is, you know, we have uh, Laguna Honda to service elderly, and infirm populations. Now, we shut down state mental hospitals decades ago, just like they did in places across this country. It was, then you're supposed to have community-based care that never came about. Well, big cities in California should be figuring out how to build mental health hospitals to take over maybe that, that what the state didn't do and mm-hmm. finance that and then provide services, mental health and drug addiction services for those that are out on the street. And that's something we need to be creative about. So I think that... Um, we need to do everything that we can, and these means to be multi-pronged, and I'm really glad you identified it the way you did.
0: Oh, thanks. Um, last serious question. Uh, your term as city attorney is up at the end of the year, right? Yes. Yes. Are you going to run for re-election? I am. You are. I am. You're not running for mayor. I
1: am not running for mayor. Um, I will say this. Um, you know, London Breed is in her first term, uh, first year uh, as mayor. I have now served with four mayors. Mm-hmm. The relationship I have with London Breed is the best I've had with any mayor. Really, it is. She has been nothing but. um, She's uh, collaborative. She's reached out. She 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 has been really a, a wonderful partner in her brief. And that's not to criticize other mayors. I'm I'm not. I'm just saying I have the best relationship I've had with any mayor with her. And uh, I'm, we're there to, uh, and we've been mutually supportive in what we've wanted to do.
0: What makes her better than, um, let's see if I can track them all, Ed Lee, <laughs> Gavin Newsom. And did you work with Willie Brown as well? I sure yeah. did.
1: I, I think that just because of the history of working with London Breed as a supervisor, and w- she's o- she's always been, um, v- reached out a lot to our office mm-hmm. and worked very collaboratively, collaboratively with us. There was a real level of trust and um Uh, between uh, both of us and with both offices with her new office and Mm -hmm. this one and then I and I think that that filters down when people see how that relationship is it filters down through organizations and having Sean Ellsburn as her chief of staff we have a long history he's worked with our office over time really smart guy
0: yeah so Mm -hmm.
1: I think that that's all worked to um, our benefit cool
0: uh, so, do you think you'll ever run for mayor again? You've tried a couple times, right?
1: No, I've only tried. Only once. tried once. Okay. It's only tried once, <laughs> and I've learned one thing in that race. Yeah, you know, I was one of the favorites, and politics is unpredictable and mm-hmm. uncertain. And who knew Gavin Newsom was going to run for lieutenant governor, yeah. and we were going to have an interim mayor, and that changes things. So, yeah. you know, I never predict the unpredictable. And um, you know, I, I've always said I'd like to be mayor. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, uh, maybe someday mm-hmm. I'll do it again. Mm-hmm. Maybe I won't. But I love doing what I'm doing now, and mm-hmm. I'm going to be running for re-election. And, um, you know, I, I, I will say that I have a, uh, a great job, and I'm able to do a lot of really good things from where I am and to still have a life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while well, I have a high school kid, that's a pretty good thing. Yeah. So I'm happy about that.
0: I'm all about work-life balance. Totally. So. Good you have it. So now we'll move on to the lightning round, which sometimes is scarier than the serious questions. <laughs> Just a heads up. Uh, what is your favorite place in San Francisco to get a burrito? La taqueria, good one. With no rice. (laughs) No rice. Yeah, they
1: they don't serve with rice. That's That's the way they do it. Uh,
0: What is your favorite movie filmed in San Francisco? Bullet. Bullet. Because of the car chase. Yep.
1: Yep. Love it, and a lot of it comes it comes through my neighborhood. Dirty Harry movies too. They come through my neighborhood.
0: Yeah, you live in Dogpatch, right? I do. Okay. Um, Where is your favorite place to get a stiff drink?
1: My favorite place <laughs> to get a stiff drink, I will tell you, is at 3rd and 20th Street. Uh-huh. There's two places that I like. One at 3rd and 20th, both in Dogpatch, called Moshi Moshi, a little Japanese restaurant that has a great martini. Okay. And then uh, the newly redone over the last couple of years, Dogpatch Saloon at the corner of 3rd and 22nd. I can roll out of my house. It's 200 yards from my house, and those are my, that, that's my other favorite place.
0: Nice. Um, I I don't know if you're going to answer this question, but I'm going to ask it. Uh, you have to defend all legislation passed by the board of supervisors and the mayor, but be honest. What's the dumbest one they've ever passed?
1: Oh wow!
0: <laughs> <laughs> they've passed some dumb ones. They have.
1: <laughs> um, wow, you caught me with one that I really can't. Remember. I I don't I don't know. I would love to give you one where I, I could come up with it but I just can't off the top of my head <laughs> because there have been some dumb ones. Uh-huh. But what you don't know is there are a lot of dumb ones that you know have been proposed, but we're able to talk them off the ledge. <laughs> oh, can you so, think of any no, of them? No, that's just it. I really, <laughs> there are some, I, um, but I, that's one I can't. You stump me.
0: Okay. Well, if you think of one, you can circle back. Um, what is the best depiction of a courtroom on TV or in the movies? The most accurate.
1: The most accurate. You know... I think a lot of them are um, inaccurate, <laughs> Yeah. you know, uh, but the, the one that I like is uh, the one with Tom Cruise and a few good men. Just oh, cruising. yeah. i like Such that a good scene. scene. I like that scene. And I think that there are some courtroom scenes there that are actually pretty accurate, even though you have your This is actors. that you can't handle the That's truth. That's right. Yeah. There's some inaccuracies, certainly. Of course. But, you know, I think they did a pretty good job.
0: <laughs> and do you have a favorite fictional lawyer?
1: No, I don't. I I don't have a favorite fictional lawyer because, you know, when you do this for a living mm-hmm. and you see so many really great real lawyers, it's kinda hard to <laughs> take some of the fictional ones uh seriously. Case there there's the one, so quickly. there's on one that TV. I kinda like when Paul Newman is in um I think it's called The Verdict uh-huh. when he's kind of that um the, the the drunk lawyer in up in um in Massachusetts, it's a medical malpractice case, oh. and he's kind of schlumpy, but he comes to the right... I like that one. I haven't seen that one. Yeah. I'll have to
0: watch it. What was the last book you read?
1: Well, a great book that I'm reading right now, which is an older book, mm-hmm. is called Vietnam, and mm-hmm. it is a... It is the definitive story about the history of Vietnam from the for- 1400s up through the Vietnam War. And the reason that I'm I, I'm reading it is because over the holidays, I went to Vietnam and Cambodia for 16 years, 16 days. And oh, wow. I really want to familiarize myself with the complete history of the country um, before I went. So that is one that I'm just about finished with. And mm-hmm. I, I hope to be finished before I went. But it was, and the other one is The Power Broker by um, Robert Caro. Um, which is the, uh, the story of Robert Moses, who basically, um, uh, he was the most powerful guy in New York, regardless of governors New mm-hmm. York world. All the infrastructure projects, Robert Cairo was a f- he, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Robert Moses built all in New York. Yeah. So that was the other one that I really cool.
0: How was your vacation? Wonderful. You I, recommend
1: Totally. Recommend it? Vietnam, fascinating country, great people, great food, great history, beautiful countryside, and uh, taken off like a rocket. And Cambodia, Angkor Wat, and the ruins, some are incredibly wild Mm -hmm. and uh, not touristed, but to me, incredibly impressive.
0: Cool. Uh, What was your first concert? Do you remember? My first
1: concert? Yeah. My first concert uh, was a Billy Joel concert back in like the late 70s in the Nassau Coliseum on uh, uh, Long Island, where Uh I'm originally from. And after that, that was my first one, Billy Joel concert. And my next one was probably a Jackson Brown concert. And uh, I think the most – one concert that will always stay in my mind was – being I was a freshman in college, and I went to a Bruce Springsteen concert. And when I came out of the concert, all, all they were playing were um, Beatles on the radio as I was driving back. It was my freshman year in college. Uh-huh. And it was the night that John Lennon was – was killed. Oh my gosh! And it, it, that totally overshadowed yeah, the of course to the, the the concert because yeah. we were driving back. People were hysterical in the car, and that was that was.
0: Yeah, wow. What is something you always make sure to squeeze into your busy day?
1: I always try and get a, a workout in mm-hmm. or a walk. Mm-hmm. It helps me, you know, from an exercise perspective, but also to clear my mind. I do a lot of my best thinking when I I walk. And if I don't get a workout in, I try and incorporate a lot of walking throughout the course of my day. So like I'll walk down. I always have a walk in, whether it be a dedicated walk or I'm walking professionally. I walk to a lot of places Mm -hmm. rather than take a car. So those are two things I try and get in every day. Good.
0: Well, thank you so much for being here today. It was a lot of fun to talk to you.
1: Great. I really enjoyed it.
0: Thanks to city attorney Dennis Herrera for being my guest today and for Libby Coleman for producing this podcast. And thank you for listening. See you next time. San Francisco City Insider is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is the editor-in-chief, and Dominic Fercasa is this podcast's producer. If you like this show, please subscribe and give us a quick review wherever you get your podcasts. Support San Francisco City Insider and a lot of great journalism with a print or digital subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.